1: It's Monday, September 30th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This is part two of a three-part series about very small things, and we're progressively getting smaller. Last week, we talked to Anne Sphedropthiguson about insects and how important they are, especially in a time when our climate is changing. This week, we talked to Kelly Wienersmith, who's a parasitologist, so one step smaller, things we can't see with the naked eye. And it turns out that parasites can affect animal behavior, including ours. And that, to me, was always fascinating. Kelly and her partner, Zach Smith wrote a book called Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything, and it recently came out in paperback. So I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to her just a tiny bit about the book, but mainly about her research and about how amazing it is that things we can't even see can come into our brains and affect our behavior. Although, fair warning, we'll mostly be talking about non-human animals. Kelly Wienersmith, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. So I'm really excited to talk to you as well, uh, because I've been thinking a lot about parasites. Uh, I recently hosted one uh, in my belly, (laughs) uh, and now she's on the outside. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So uh, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in parasites. Oh, man. So, you know, if you had told me when I was 14 that I
0: was going to be studying parasites, I would have told you no way that is way too creepy. But uh, I started studying animal behavior while I was working on my master's degree. And I read... Carl Zimmer's book, Parasite Rex. And that was the first time I went from thinking of parasites as being just straight up creepy with no redeeming characteristics at all to realizing that parasites are still straight up creepy, but also fascinating and that they can teach us about how hosts work and just that, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff to know about parasites too. And that was when I first started seeing parasites in a different light. And then one day my advisor suggested, well, maybe it would be interesting for you to work on your PhD, looking at how parasites change host behavior. And that is what I have done in the last decade or for the last decade.
1: Yeah. So, so beyond just being interested in, you know, things that take over their hosts, how they change our behavior is like right up my wheelhouse. (laughs) I'm a psychologist and I'm interested in human behavior, Uh, but behavior of all animals as well. Uh, And I just have to send you a kudos like, uh, you know, you, you, you wrote something where the title was, What's Gotten Into You. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I have, to, I have to admit, Zach helped
0: me with that one. <laughs> uh, but, and when we came up with it, I was like, yes, that's perfect. I don't have to think about this anymore.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, so let, let me, let, maybe we should start with your favorite parasite that changes behavior. Uh, tell us about it. All right. My, so my favorite parasite that changes behavior is the Crypt Keeper
0: Wasp, or Eudaris set. So this is a wasp that manipulates another wasp and that wasp manipulates the tree that it lives on. So it's a hyper manipulator. So here, let me tell you about the host first. So the host is a synipid gall wasp called the crypt gall wasp. What it does is the mom lays an egg in a developing stem and then the tree is manipulated into producing this compartment called a crypt. And the egg that was laid in that compartment is going to hatch. And then it eats nutritious tissue that now surrounds the crypt. And then it goes through some development. And when it becomes an adult, it chews a hole out of the crypt and goes off to complete its life cycle. Now, that sounds
1: just like human pregnancy.
0: It's a lot like human <laughs> pregnancy. And as, <laughs> as the mother of two children, I can tell you, it's very similar. Okay, sorry, uh, go on. <laughs> no, and so uh, so when when the mom was laying the egg into the stem... The hole she made was really tiny. And so the adult wasp has to chew a hole out if it's going to get out. So it's got to do that on its own. So that's how things go if everything works well for the host. But every once in a while, a parasitoid comes along and the parasitoid lays an egg inside of the crypt where the host is living. And the host is induced to make that emergence hole to get out, but it makes it much smaller than it usually does. And it doesn't get through all the way. So if you look at these branches where this manipulation is happening and the parasitoid is present, you have all of these tiny little holes with insect eyes peering out. And it's kind of creepy when you look at it under a microscope. It's just all these eyes peering at you, but they're all dead, lifeless eyes because the parasitoid at this point eats the internal organs in the host and kills it. And the host is dead now plugging this emergence hole. And the parasitoid, when it becomes an adult, the way it gets out is it chews a hole through the head of its host and emerges through the host's head, which is like the most metal life cycle ever. And I love it. (laughs) Oh, my
1: God. Wow. I think I need a nap. after. That's amazing. That's that's that is spectacular. It, Um, It is super cool. So, so, like, tell me a little bit about the process of studying these kinds of parasites. I mean, you know, I assume that you really are using tools that give you snapshots, but how do you actually observe them doing this kind of behavior since they're so tiny? So, in general, studying parasites that manipulate the behavior of their host
0: is really hard to do because you you don't just have parasites, you have parasites and hosts, and you have to capture them at the right time, and you have to somehow keep both of their life cycles In the lab concurrently, and a lot of times we don't know enough about the biology to to do that well. So I work in another system where it's a little bit easier. But in this system, so far, what we're doing is we go out and we collect a lot of different tree parts where we think, where where we can see a gall so we know there's a host there. And we bring those into the lab. And what I love about this system is that the equipment is pretty cheap. So we literally take stems and leaves, depending on the host that we're looking at, because the Crypt Keeper wasp infects multiple different gall wasp hosts. And we stick them in little clear solo cups, you know, like the cups that we Mm -hmm. all drank our beer in when we were in in college. Uh, And we put uh, a coffee filter on top with a rubber band to hold it in place. And we just kind of watch it over time. Uh, And so in this system, you bring the galls in, and then you wait to see does what emerges from that gall does a host emerge, in which case everything went great for the host? Or do you end up with a hole with the host eye poking in it or poking out? And that means that we have the parasitoid in there.
1: And so but you don't actually insert the parasitoid like how I mean, and you know, is this is once you have a parasitoid, then you know that you've got like a colony that you can create? Or is this something that is actually pretty common? Um, how, How does that happen?
0: Oh, so that that is a great question. So we're currently trying to get this system in the lab. So we, right now, all we can do is sort of capture snapshots in nature and bring that into the lab. And what we're trying to do is figure out, you know, so for the host, for example, we don't know where the host lives next. So they have two different stages in their life cycle. At one part of their life cycle, they live in the stems. And we think for the next part in their life cycle, they live in the leaves, but we haven't actually found them yet. So we're trying to find all of the different parts and figure out how to keep that alive in a greenhouse setting. But we only discovered this system in in 2015, 16, 17-ish. So Scott Egan, my collaborator, was the first one to sort of notice all of these eyes peeking out of stems and try to figure out what's going on. Uh, And then he brought me on the project. So we're, we're still trying to figure out the life cycle and get it in the lab.
1: I mean, it's really amazing to think that, you know, you can still discover something like this. (laughs) uh, in, In 2019, right? I, I remember when I was an undergrad
0: thinking, there is just no way that I can be a scientist because we know so much. You know, your textbooks are just crammed with information and there's millions of scientific papers. Being able to find your niche was just a daunting, that just sounded super daunting. But this system was literally in the trees outside of our offices at Rice University. There's just amazing stuff waiting to be discovered everywhere.
1: Yeah, so last week on the show, we had a Norwegian uh, researcher named uh, Anne Sverdrup Theigesson on the show. She wrote a book called Buzz, Sting, Bite, uh, which, by the way, if you haven't read yet, you should, you'd be interested in it. But she talks about how there's like 200 million insects (laughs) uh, for every human. Uh, And when when you put it that way, it does seem like there is an immense amount of these tiny beings uh, around to study. And of course, there's so much diversity. One, One comment that she made was that it's actually common to be rare in the insect world. Um, is that true of the parasite world too? Well, so parasites probably make up something like 40
0: to 60% of metazoan biodiversity. So there's maybe more parasites than there are hosts. Uh, and you know, like what? So the, well, well, <laughs> wait, also, wait, 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 how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, so okay, so so you know, you as a human, you you know that you can you can be infected by lots of things. You can get the flu and the cold, but but you know, think let's just think about, you know, metazoan parasites. There are hookworms that live in our guts. There are uh schistosomes that live in so, you know, the veins of folks in Africa who are infected. There are other trematodes that live in our livers. So, you know, at, we are one species with a lot of different parasites that live in us. The host that I talked about that is manipulated by the Crypt Keeper wasp, if you keep those in the lab, you also get something like 10 other parasitoid species emerging from those crypts also. Wow. So you know, each of the host, each host has a lot of different kinds of parasites, and there's some overlap between multiple host species. You know, cows and humans harbor some of the same trematode species. But we do think that there might be more parasites on this planet Uh, in terms of metazoans and stuff, then there are free living hosts. And so, you know, if you think about how many people are studying parasites relative to free living animals, there's definitely far fewer of us
1: parasitologists. So there's a lot left to discover and figure
0: out for sure.
1: Yeah, so I mean like, that kind of brings up the the point of like, you know, I guess I think of a parasite as as you know, ult- ultimately harming the host, right? So, mm-hmm. is that is that a wrong-headed view because if we have so many parasites that are living in us, <laughs> why don't we die from parasitosis? Well, <laughs>
0: you know, well I mean, commonly. so part of,
1: part of that is because we're just lucky
0: to live in the United States right now. Plenty of people died from parasites, you know, in in our evolutionary past. Uh, but, you know, so so partly it's we we now live in these more hygienic environments. And so we encounter fewer parasites. Part of it is because, you know, for a lot of these parasites, it's not in their best interest either for us to be dying. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them, for example, live in our gut. And as we, you know, go around defecating, that's how they pass their eggs. And so if we die, they lose the ability to spread their eggs around the environment. And so a lot of them just take you know, they're small, they take just some nutrients, some calories, some energy, but not so much that we're totally debilitated or we die. And so, you know, there's just variability in how bad some of these parasites are for us, whether we even notice we're infected with them or not. And then again, we, you know, our, our environments right now control them uh, quite a bit by just, you know, hand washing and sanitation and stuff.
1: Yeah. So, you know, going past the joke of, you know, your children being parasites, um, one thing that I have learned a lot from my children is that uh, they can be hosts of parasites that I never oh, knew existed. Right? So many parasites. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, just to trigger warning for our audience, what I'm about to say is pretty gross. Um, so I recently got a, you know, the the, the dreaded letter from preschool. Uh, oh, no. Where, <laughs> you know uh they describe the 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 infection uh or you know a parasite that has inf- has been known to infect one of the other children and of course they don't don't tell you who who uh, which mm-hmm. is totally ethical yep. um but they describe this parasite that l- like literally Kelly let me tell you what it does i'm sure you already know about this <laughs> but like in the middle of the night it like crawls out of the anus of the child uh and causes extreme itching like Pink but only worms. at night <laughs>
0: So gross. Well, And you know why it causes the itching? No. Okay, so so that is a mommy pinworm. She's, she crawls out uh, onto the anus at night and she lays her eggs and then she makes, I, I think she lays something else that causes extreme itching. And then our children who don't quite have, you know, the sanitary practices that we do yet, they reach their hands into their underwear and they scratch and they get those little eggs underneath their nails. And then later they stick their thumb in their mouth. And they get reinfected or they go and they touch our counters and then you get infected. And that's you know, I think preschools have some like crazy high prevalence of pinworms. And you know, not everybody is so itchy that you immediately know you have it. So there might be kids in that classroom right now who have it and they just haven't realized it yet because kids are scratching their butts all the time anyway.
1: Uh, well, thank you. Now I will not be sleeping tonight. Uh, but <laughs> I will say our preschool director totally contradicted you. She's like, oh, you'll know. They'll wake you up with an itchy bum. And I was like, okay, great. My, my son hasn't done that yet. Well, but- maybe, maybe they will. I don't but, know. Yeah, I mean, you def- I def- definitely have seen like dogs who have pinworms, you know, doing the butt shuffle on the grass, like clearly trying to scratch their own butts, right? That's what we're talking about. Same thing, right? Uh, you know, I don't know if that's pinworm or a tapeworm. I definitely know that that's a parasite, but I don't know
0: too much about canine parasites, but I should because we got a dog recently. So I should have those things on my mind.
1: Yeah, maybe he's like a, just a living lab for you to discover new parasites. Ooh, I'm not going <laughs> to tell my daughter that, that, uh, that that's what I'm doing to her dog. Support for today's show comes from Mova Globes. Mova Globes turn all on their own, with or without a base, in any setting with ambient lighting. No batteries are needed and no sloppy cords to detract from your enjoyment. Instead, hidden magnets provide the movement. With over 40 different designs, including world maps, outer space, and famous artworks, there's something for everyone. The outer space collection even features graphics provided by NASA and JPL, complete with planets, moons, asteroid, and constellation designs. It's a great gift for the person who has everything. Or pair it with your own home decor as a conversation starter. Recently, I got a globe that's blue and silver, and it's totally awesome. And I put it in my office. And whenever I'm trying to, you know, do some writing or some deep thinking, I often find myself just mesmerized watching it turn and turn and turn. It's also a lot of fun when I have guests come into the studio because they often comment on it. Visit movaglobes.com slash minds and use the code minds for 10% off your purchase. That's M-O-V-A-Globes.com slash minds and use the code minds for 10% off your purchase. There's a new podcast from Stitcher called Last at the Smithsonian. It's a pop culture history podcast exploring the little known stories behind iconic artifacts from the National Museum of American History. The host is Asaf Mandvi from The Daily Show, and he goes inside the National Museum of American History and shares smart and fascinating insights into cultural items like Fonzie's leather jacket and Dorothy's ruby slippers. Along with National Museum of American History curators and celebs, Asaf traces just how these special objects came to define our culture. So listen and subscribe to Lost at the Smithsonian right now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. All right, so let's let's move back a little bit to talk about behavior. So uh, I love your your example uh, of the wasp. Uh, are there parasites that we know of? And I the only one I can think of is the Toxoplasma gondii uh, mm-hmm. that that uh, can influence human behavior.
0: Well, so there's some that influence in less subtle ways. So for example, if you know people who get rabies become absolutely petrified of water, major hydrophobia. If you try to get a cup of water near them, they'll totally freak out. They'll gag if you try to make them drink it. And I don't think they tend to get super aggressive and bitey the way dogs do, uh, but that changes behavior. But that's more of a like, when you are infected, you know that you are infected and it's a major personality change. And I feel like, you know, obviously that's interesting, you know, diagnostically, but from the perspective of like just being freaked out because it's scary to think of your behavior being controlled by something and you don't know it. We, we don't know of that many parasites that do that. So Toxoplasma gondii. Uh, seems to do that. Should I explain that parasite? Sure. I mean, I love hearing about it, and I'd love, <laughs>
1: I'd love to hear your version of of, of what's going on.
0: Okay. So uh, Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan parasite that lives. It's it lives in the guts of cats. That's the definitive host. That's where it reproduces sexually. And after it reproduces, it makes something like an egg, but it's called an oocyst, uh, and that gets defecated by the cats into things like your garden. And when an animal like you or I or a rat or a bird or a mouse accidentally consume the oasis, it lives inside of us. And then it forms a semi-dormant stage that can live in uh, or our muscles and it can live in our brain. And that's the same for rats and for mice. And when it's in rats, it seems to make them go from being afraid of the smell of cat urine to being attracted to the smell of cat urine. So if you look at rat brains before they're infected, if you expose them to the smell of cat urine, the part of their brain that's associated with fear lights up. Whereas afterwards, the part of their brain that's associated with like sexual arousal seems to be activated. So they go from being like, ah, to being like, ooh, and they, they spend more time around the smell of cat urine And so this has been called Fatal Feline Attraction by Joanne Webster and the other folks who have studied this. And uh, so so we have this really great story about how this parasite almost certainly gets the rats eaten by cats because now they're hanging out in these areas where there's predators. But even though this is one of the most popular examples of behavioral manipulation of a host by a parasite, this is one of the systems where we really can't show that rats that are infected by the parasite are in fact more likely to get eaten by a cat than are uninfected rats. Hmm. And and it's, most of the problem is, is ethical. So the closer you get to an animal being human and rats are, you know, mammals and we, we think that they're cute and cuddly or some of us do uh, you, you can't get permission, nor would you probably want to get permission to infect rats and then release cats and see, you know, watch this, the slaughter ensue. And so we haven't actually shown that this behavior gets rats eaten by cats more often. It seems like it probably does, huh. but we haven't shown that yet. Um, and I don't know when we will, if ever.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because I actually lecture about this when I, you know, I, I I teach biological psychology and I talk about the amygdala, which is the sen- the fear center, or you know, uh, one of the ways in which fear can modulate our memories. And I talk about how it's affected in, in these these rats. And, and I've always said that, you know, it makes them docile and therefore easier to be eaten. But uh, I guess I'll have to change my lecture. I didn't realize that we hadn't actually proven that.
0: I, as far as as I've seen, and I'm pretty sure that if that paper comes out, that will immediately get a ton of press. And But mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I do not think we've huh. done that. And it, it is, you know, I've talked to a couple people and they've who study it, and they're like, yeah, you know, I yes, I would like to know the answer to that experiment, but I would never feel comfortable doing it.
1: Yeah, I get that.
0: Yeah. Uh, And so I I do know some people are trying to do some studies looking at rats in nature. And so you can figure out if a rat is infected by seeing if it has antibodies to Toxoplasma gondii. Mm -hmm. And if it has antibodies, then you know that parasite is living in its body. And then maybe you could track these populations over time and try to figure out which rats are eaten by predatory cats and which ones aren't and try to track their behavior and maybe put cat urine out in some areas. And anyway, some people are trying to see if you can do natural experiments, just observing what happens to sort of get a handle on it. But anyway, as far as I know, that has not been done yet.
1: But we do know that there, or at least there have been some studies of human behavioral changes uh, related to infection by this parasite.
0: Yes. And so uh, Yaroslav Flager is a Czech scientist who was, uh, kind of wondering about his own behavior, that the way that I've heard this story is that he thought to himself, you know, I have weird responses to things. I wonder if I'm infected by a parasite or I wonder if a parasite is to some extent controlling my behavior. And he looked to see if he was infected by Toxoplasma gondii, and indeed he was. And this seems to have set him off on a path of really being interested in seeing if people who are infected by this parasite, on average, act different than people who are not infected by this parasite. So he's given psychology surveys to a lot of people in the Czech army, a lot of undergrads. And then after they do the survey, he draws some blood and looks for antibodies, like I talked about, uh, which you can do with the rats, too. And then he looks for correlations between infection status and responses on those psychology tests. And so he has found things like uh, women who are infected are more warm and caring, and men who are infected are less likely to follow the rules and they get more jealous. Uh, And so he he has found some correlations with personality traits. Folks have also found that when individuals are infected, their responses are just a little bit slower. So people who are infected are like, I think it's 2.65 times more likely to get in a car accident than someone who's uninfected. And that's not because they're all over the road driving crazy. It's just it, because, you know, you have those moments where you have to make a split second decision and the people who are infected just make that decision a little bit more slowly and are more likely to get into that car accident. And so, yeah, there's, there's some like personality scores, but but one of the problems with these studies, uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm sure the researchers would, would admit this as a problem too, is that it's hard to know if the behavior caused someone to get infected or if the parasite is changing the behavior. So for example, maybe men who are less likely to follow the rules are also more likely to not cook their meat through all the way and get infected by the parasite that way. So we can get infected if we accidentally ingest the oosis in the environment maybe a cat pooped in your garden but we can also get infected if for example uh, a cow is infected the parasite is living in the cow's muscle and we don't cook it through all the way then we can get infected by the parasite that way there's it's actually a ask, lot of different ways
1: let me let me ask though are cat owners more likely to be infected than non cat owners oh i
0: can Oh my gosh, I should know the answer to that question. So, so it's, it's complicated because if you have an indoor cat, that's a hundred percent indoor, that cat is almost certainly not going to be catching rats and and Mm. mice. So it's probably not getting infected. So you're probably fine, but Mm. pregnant women are supposed to have somebody else change the litter box in case their cat is infected. Because Mm -hmm. if you get infected when you're pregnant, the parasite goes to the fetus and causes major neurological problems. Um, and so I, I guess I don't, know off the top of my head if it's actually the case that pet owners who have cats that are indoor outdoor cats have a higher prevalence or are more likely to get infected by the parasite. It seems like that should be the case, but I don't know that off the top of my head, actually.
1: Okay. Well, I appreciate your scientific integrity and not making that assumption (laughs) as I have in the past and just written off all of these behavioral changes as "Eh, cat people
0: well I, it
1: is it's very tempting <laughs> yes but but uh, but no all, all joking aside uh, it, yeah it's good to know that we can't just uh, write off these these personality traits as uh, being akin to making a person a cat person but but it's so person. much fun to talk about over beer <laughs> like so th- there, there have been studies showing that uh, entrepreneurs
0: are more likely to be infected, and the idea here is that the parasite makes people take more risky or more risks in their career but it seems just as likely that entrepreneurs are people who take risks and maybe went to an area where the food safety laws are more lax or they're less likely to cook their food all the way or blah, blah, blah. And, and anyway, so there, there's all these studies that are very fun to talk about. But really, it's really hard because again, ethics, you can't infect people and then be like, are you going to be an entrepreneur? I don't know. At age 12, I'm going to infect you with a parasite and not infect your twin sibling and see what direction your lives
1: take. Like, you you know, (laughs) we, we can't do those kinds of things, of course. Not yet, anyway. Right. Um And, and, and our uh, dystopic future, maybe. <laughs> correct. So speaking of our dystopic future and, you know, things that are really fun to talk about over beers, um, I want to let our audience know that your book uh, with Zach is called Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. It's now available on paperback. Um, and it's an instant New York Times bestseller. I'm looking at the sticker right now on front of the book <laughs> that says that, which is super awesome. Thanks. So I want to ask you a little bit about um, the emergence of this book. Uh, how did you come up with the idea? How, what, how, what was your process uh, as you guys were doing the research and, and ultimately producing this book? Well, so I think we, my husband and I both like working on projects. We
0: like doing something together at all times. And for a while we were podcasting, but then we had babies and nobody wants to hear two people talking about science with children screaming in the background. We tried that a couple of times. It didn't go real well. And so we, de- we decided we needed a new project. And Zach got approached by an agent who wanted to know if he wanted to write a book. And he said, "Well, I, I do if my, you know, if, if I can do it with my wife because we're we're looking for a new project to do together." So we decided we were going to write this book together. We were looking for something to research that we thought was interesting, but was not something we were probably going to read a lot about on our own, like you know, an excuse for exploring a new research topic. Uh, and Zach suggested emerging technologies, and that sounded pretty cool. So that sort of set us down the path we had originally decided we were going to write short stories about our short essays about 50 technologies, but it ended up just feeling like funny Wikipedia articles instead of like actually, you know, a, a nice, satisfying deep dive into these technologies. So we whittled the list down to 10. And we tried to find 10 that didn't overlap too much uh, and would just be something that would be fun to read about for a month. Cause for each of these technologies, we did about a month worth of reading before we started writing. And then we just kind of one of us led each chapter. One of us did a, you know, started off with the research, wrote a draft, and then we shot it to the other one who would sort of go through the draft, uh, make some edits, figure out where we hadn't done enough research. Then I would do some interviews and then incorporate that. And then he would add jokes and comics. Then we'd send it off to our friends, uh, who were smart people who didn't work in the field, who could hopefully catch areas where we hadn't explained things clearly. And then we sent it to experts who would hopefully catch any mistakes that we made. Uh, and we just uh, we did that ten times, and uh, and wrote a book.
1: Yeah, it, and it's awesome. It's it's it is really great. If uh, if if our listeners haven't uh, picked it up yet, I highly recommend it. Um, so can you pick your favorite one uh, that maybe wouldn't be the same one that Zach would pick uh, and tell us about it.
0: Uh, So honestly, my answer changes just about every day that I get asked this question because all of the technologies are cool, but I just sort of am more excited about some of them on different days. So I guess today my answer is bioprinting. So the idea that we might be able to use 3d printers to reconstruct human organs. So yeah, something like 7,000 people die every year in the U S on the organ transplant list, waiting for organs to become available. And you know, those people wouldn't have to die if we could 3d print organs using our own cells and that would also have the benefit of making it so that people who receive transplant organs wouldn't need to be on immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their lives. But this is actually a really hard problem to solve. And you know some of the problems are technical, like how do you get a printer to extrude cells without popping the cells? because you want to move quickly uh, to make this organ. But if you move too quickly, you start popping the cells as they go through the like the printer. Uh, or, you know, maybe you make a structure and you put the cells on top of it. But then one of the more biological problems is that you need to have vasculature that's a couple millimeters away from every cell in the organ so that those cells can get nutrients and get rid of their waste. So right now, just trying to 3D print vasculature, which branches and becomes very, very tiny and very, very thin, is one of the bigger problems that needs to get solved. And it's just a really fascinating problem. How do you 3D print vasculature?
1: Yeah. And, and I agree with you that, you know, if we were able to solve this problem, I mean, I know that a lot of people are kind of working on this from different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it is a really, uh, you know, useful thing to have to be able to do. Like taking this, let, let's say beyond people who need transplants, let's, let's move a little bit further into the future. Um, what do you see as kind of the outcomes? Like, let's say now we can 3D print, bioprint, organs, like, are we gonna kind of refresh our livers after a couple rough binges? Or, you know, what do you think? Do you think that that's something that would happen in the future with some regularity? Or do you think this will always be reserved for people who are at death's door? Well, so I think, uh, I
0: think the answer to that question has a lot to do with how unpleasant these surgeries are. So even if you could get a new liver, that is a really serious surgery that doesn't always go super well and requires a lot of recovery time. And so, you know, it could be the case that maybe someone drinks too much for too long and they're able to get a new liver and that kind of sets them on the right track again. I would think that for a lot of people, the process of needing that surgery would make them rethink uh, whether or not they want to drink that much going forward, because yeah, it's just a really unpleasant surgery, and so I think the unpleasantness of the procedure would make it so that people wouldn't think of their livers as completely expendable. Maybe people would would be a little bit less cautious about some of their behaviors, but again, you know, between the money and the time and the pain, I, I think a lot of people would still not want to have to do these sorts of surgeries regularly.
1: All right. So, speaking of things that are unpleasant, uh, I want to end on another note uh, like that. <laughs> Which is, uh, I want you to tell us uh, about another parasite that changes behavior, and it doesn't need to be humans, although bonus points if it is. Um, (laughs) But but tell us about uh, another story of of a parasite that you know about that, that, you know, really alters the behavior of its host. Well, I'll tell you
0: about the other system that I study because I think it's super cool. So trophically transmitted parasites are parasites that need their current host to be eaten by the next host in the life cycle in order to get transmitted. So there's a fair number of parasites that have that strategy that seem to be able to manipulate their host in ways that get that parasite Eaten, or sorry, get that host eaten by the next host in the life cycle. So, Toxoplasma gondii, had, you know, at one stage in its life cycle is trophically transmitted. The rat needs to be eaten by a cat. Uh, but I study a fish that needs to be eaten by a predatory bird so that its trematode parasites can get from one host to another. So, these fish, they're swimming around, and even when they're, you know, they very recently hatched, there are all of these parasites swimming around in the water. These are trematodes called Euheplercus californiensis. And the parasite is able to burrow through the fish's skin and follow nerves up to the brain and then form cysts that sit on top of the brain, not in the brain, but on top. And by the time these fish are adults, they can have something like 1,000 to 8,000 of the parasites on their brain. Wow. I know. And what blows my mind is that the fish mostly seem normal. So they're not like swimming on their side. They don't look like majorly sick. Like you might expect a fish where like one and a half percent of its entire body mass is parasites living on its brain. You would think that would really mess a fish up, but they mostly seem normal. But every once in a while, they'll like dart forward really quickly or scratch their body against a rock. And that reflects the light off of their silvery bellies. And the more fish are infected, the more often they, the more parasites, sorry, the more parasites that live on the fish's brain, the more often they do what we call these conspicuous behaviors, like darting forward very quickly. And infected fish are 10 to 30 times more likely to be eaten by predatory birds than are uninfected fish. So it looks like in the, you know, and it's much easier to get permission to infect fish and expose them to predatory birds than to infect rats and expose them to cats. And so we have some data actually showing that this parasite does increase the rate that the fish are consumed. Um, and that's sort of one of the nice things about this system is we have a little bit of data to show that this manipulation really is relevant in an ecological setting. Uh, mm. But yeah, that's that's my favorite system. It's such a weird parasite.
1: Yeah. I mean, is there any evidence that that parasite gives any benefit to the, the fish? And if not, why is it that those, you know, is it, is it like, why don't, those fish then become extinct. You know what I mean? Like, given just the sheer magnitude, the number of parasites involved, it seems like they should just decimate an entire population. Yeah.
0: So at the moment, we we have not quantified any benefits yet. Uh, that is on our mind. The fish. A lot of these fish, by the t- you know, the, it takes a long time to get a thousand or eight thousand parasites on the brain, and so it's possible that on average, most of these fish are having a chance to breed before they get eaten by predatory birds. Mm -hmm. And the fish live something like a year and a half. So if they get one chance to breed, that's probably all the chances they were going to get to breed anyway. And this parasite might just be directing, you know, the fish's biomass to predatory birds as opposed to, you know, maybe the crabs that would eat the dead bodies uh, in this system. So it might be moving energy from the aquatic environment to the terrestrial environment, but not impacting the fitness of the fish. You know, dying is, is bad. But from an evolutionary perspective, if you die after you're done breeding, uh, you know, evolution doesn't care anymore.
1: Yep. Doesn't uh, matter.
0: Right. Doesn't matter. Uh, so, you know, these fish might get a chance to breed. There, there are there is some evidence in humans that having some parasites is important for fine tuning the way our immune system works. This is called the hygiene hypothesis. So in that case, you know, maybe our bodies are compensating for getting infected by using the parasites as, you know, sort of information or a cue to help our immune system do the right thing. And in the absence of parasites, it seems like our immune systems, for some people, not all people, but for some people, it seems like when you have no parasites, our immune systems go after ourselves instead. And this is why we have some autoimmune diseases and allergies to weird things Um, I don't think we have all of the details of that hypothesis figured out yet, but there's some pretty strong data that as communities increase uh, their hygienic practices and parasites become less and less common, things like irritable bowel uh, and other autoimmune diseases increase in frequency. So parasites might be good for us in some way. It's not because the parasites want to help us, but it's because our bodies have sort of adapted to the presence of parasites. And when you lose something that you know used to be there all the time before, it seems like maybe that throws us off a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard that a lot, obviously, as a, as a mother of two young children. Uh, but I'm still going to teach him to wash his hands because pinworms. So. Yeah, yeah, no, you want to avoid pinworms for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm so torn. Everyone, I, like, you know, I, I want my kids to be around soil bacteria because it's not just helmets. It's supposed to be like bacteria in the soil that are good for tuning your immune system. But I also just do not want pinworms, so yeah. they wash their hands.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, Kelly Wienersmith, Smith, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Please give our best regards to Zach and congratulations on the success of Sunish. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on the show. I had a lot of fun. So that's it for another episode. That was part two of our three part series on little things. Next week, we get even smaller into the quantum world. And we talk to Caltech physicist Sean Carroll about quantum mechanics and amazingly how little physicists actually know. I wanna thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our new Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer awald Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. And if you hear some background noise in this episode, my apologies, there is major construction going on just on the other side of the wall of my studio. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. We're also looking for someone to help us with our social media, so if that person is you, please reach out to us at contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. I'll see you next week.